were in Eccles Street, where Bloom's house stood. Now, Bloom is a new character. We haven't met him before. Uh, we've left Stephen on the beach, so now we're into a, a new milieu altogether, a new set of characters, one of whom is Leopold Bloom, and the other is his wife, Molly. Mr. Leopold Bloom ate with relish the inner organs of beasts and fowls. He liked thick giblet soup, nutty gizzards, a stuffed roast heart, liver slices fried with crust crumbs, fried hen-cods rolls. Most of all, he liked grilled mutton kidneys, which gave to his palate a fine tang of faintly scented yogi. Well, they lived here, just in a house that is now marked by that plaque that we can look at outside the Matter Private Nursing Home. But if we look across the road behind us, we have almost identical houses to the ones that were in Bloom's time, so we can well imagine what it looked like here. It was a very modest, lower-middle-class house with an area in front of it, a parlour, and two storeys above that. A rather small house, really. And in it we find, when the chapter opens, Mr Leopold Bloom making breakfast for his wife. He gives some milk to the cat, milk which we later discover has been delivered. So he's been up for a while. Obviously he's ready, he has his, his suit on, he's shaved, washed, and he's now making his wife's breakfast. We learn that it's somewhere between 8 and 9 o'clock in the morning. Kidneys were in his mind as he moved about the kitchen softly writing her breakfast things on the humpy tray. Gelid light and air were in the kitchen, but out of doors, gentle summer morning everywhere. He's in the basement where the, the kitchen is and goes upstairs to the ground floor where his wife is asleep in what I would describe as the back parlour. I'm going round the corner back in a minute. And when he had heard his voice say it, he added... You don't want anything for breakfast? A sleepy, soft grunt answered. Mm. Which he takes as a no, and he hears her turning in the bed, and the bed, it's a brass bed, jingling. He thinks of how it was bought. He thinks that it was bought at an auction in Gibraltar by his father-in-law, Major Tweedy. But, of course, we learned later that that's not the case at all. He takes his hat off the hall stand and puts his fingers in to feel for some card that's in it. We don't know what the significance is there. Then he goes out and realises that he hasn't got his key. He has a good suit on at the moment and he's left it in the trousers he has left off. So he just pulls the door to so that the flap comes over the edge and it appears to be shut and that's it. So it's a warm day, he says, the sun is shining. And he says that it's going to be hot because he's wearing black, we discover. So he's in a black suit, walking out, going for his kidney. He thinks of the sun shining, and then he thinks of the sunrise and what Griffith said. What Arthur Griffith said about the headpiece over the Freeman leader, a home-rule sun rising up in the northwest from the laneway behind the Bank of Ireland. It happens that if the sun was rising behind the Bank of Ireland, then it would be rising in the northwest. So, I mean, that is another in-joke. He crossed the road where there was a pub on the corner run by Larry O'Rourke. He thinks that Larry is 
quite a, a clever businessman, but it's, he'd be no use to give him an ad. So therefore we have this idea that maybe Bloom is looking for ads as well. So he walks on and he comes to St. Joseph's School and he hears the children in the school chanting geography. In nicht Türk, in nicht Schark, in nicht Boffin. At the geography. Mein sleeve bloom. He comes to the butchers and there's a girl from next door already in the butchers. He remembers seeing her whacking carpets in the back. He, he likes the look of her. He takes up a piece of paper that's on the counter, which is an ad for a model farm near Lake Tiberius. The girl is served and goes out. He then becomes impatient to go after her so that he can watch her walking in front of him. Anyway, he gets his kidney and when he goes out, the girl has disappeared. So that's the first of his disappointments for the day. He's walking back to what we learn later is Eccles Street. A cloud comes over the sun and he sees an old woman coming across from what is obviously a pub, clutching a nagging bottle. When he comes home, there are two letters and a card on the floor. Two are for him, a letter is for his wife, and of course he sees it written in a bold hand, the address, Mrs. Marion Bloom, and is rather offended by that. Then she should have been addressed by strict etiquette as Mrs. Leopold Bloom. He gives the letter to his wife, then he goes down and puts on his kidney. He goes back to his wife, and, and she is looking at the card, but has hidden the letter under a pillow. The card is from their daughter, who is in Mullingar, learning photography, and he asks who the letter is from, and it's from someone called Boylan, who is bringing the program for a concert in the afternoon to see Molly. He asks, what is she to sing? And she says, La she Ram with J.C. Doyle. Now, in Dublin of 1904, J.C. Doyle was one of the leading singers, so we know then that it's not just the hole and corner sort of thing. It's quite a, a, a posh affair going to be. And she's also going to sing Love's Old Sweet Song. Once in the dear dead days beyond She says that she wants a, a word explained in a book she's reading. Bloom picks it off the floor. The word she wants explained is metempsychosis. And, uh, of course, Bloom explains it. And she says, oh, rocks tell us in plain words, which Andy says that it's transmigration of souls anyway. Then she smells something burning, and, of course, it's the kidney, and Bloom has to rush out to rescue it. 
down in the kitchen he reads Millie's letter and finds that she's quite happy she's got the stuff that he sent her for her birthday, her 15th birthday, which occurred on the day before. And she has a lot of friends, among whom is a young student called Bannon. And he sings Boylan's song, which is the lovely seaside girls. Down at Margate, looking very charming, you're sure to meet those girls, the dear girls, those lovely seaside girls. With sticks they steer and promenade the pier to give the boys a treat. In pique silks and lace, they tip you quite a playful wink. It always is the case. You seldom stop to think. He then takes up titbits, which was rather thrashy magazine at the time, and goes out to the lavatory, which was in the back garden. And while he's there, he reads Matcham's Masterstroke, which appeared in Titbits. He wonders if he can write something like that. He tears it up, makes use of it, and then comes out, and he hears the bells of St. George's Church, which we can see from here, just looking down across Dorset Street, we can still see the spire of St. George's Street Church, and the bells are striking a quarter to nine. Hey ho, hey ho. Quarter to. There again, the overtone following through the air. Third. Poor Dignam. We also learn, uh, as you said, that it's the same morning. We, in a way, go back. So the book opens twice, uh, and there's an entirely new character named right away Mr. Leopold Bloom. Joyce usually calls him Mr. Bloom. This sort of thing is always there. It's a very strange kind of distance, whereas Stephen is referred to as Stephen. We learn a lot about him. It's quite a different character. Not as educated. He is not so sure about physics, what the relation between a black suit and um, and heat is. and all. He fumbles, as most of us actually would. He's sensual. The first thing we learn about him is his food preference. And they're very odd. They wouldn't be average kind of thing. I don't know whether these inner organs would have been cheap thrown away perhaps. Uh, so Bloom is introduced by his taste. We also learn that he's preparing breakfast for her, unspecified so far, and again that would have been in, I would say, the average household uh, a bit unusual where it was expected uh, that the wife would do breakfast. But we have absolutely no indication that Bloom resents that. He seems to like that. He then also eats his Kidney likes it, uh, and then at the end he, as you say, goes to the outhouse to relieve himself, and that must have been one of the very first scenes of such a very ordinary activity, which is normally not mentioned or not written about, and that shocked early readers quite a bit. Uh. Quietly he read, restraining himself. The first column, and yielding but resisting, began the second. Midway, his last resistance yielding, he allowed his bowels to ease themselves quietly as he read, reading still patiently. That slight constipation of yesterday quite gone. Hope it's not too big. Bring on piles again. No, just right. So we know quite a bit about him, also uh, the relation uh, to his wife. We have this very interesting two-bedroom scenes 
when he brings her the breakfast, she's not very appreciative uh, for her. What a time you were, she says. There's some conversation, what time is the funeral? At a certain time it becomes clear, at the end, the last words are actually poor dignum, so it must be funeral of somebody he knows. Again, Joyce parcels out this information piece by piece. A strip of torn envelope peeped from under the dimpled pillow. In the act of going, he stayed to straighten the bedspread. Uh, who was the letter from? He asked. Bold hand, Marion. Oh, Boylan. He's bringing the programme. Uh, what are you singing? Lachi Darem with J.C. Doyle and Love's Old Sweet Song. Her full lips drinking smile. conversation between the couple there where you, you feel uh, and you can't really put the finger on it there's something strange going there's not much talk about who is bringing the programme oh Boylan she says and then it's dismissed and the topic changes so one does perhaps feel in, in slow motion there's something going on which we don't yet know it's as though she wanted to change the subject when yep. she asked about metempsychosis yep. yep. and wanted to get the talk off boiling yep. rather than anything else. There's a word I wanted to ask you. She swallowed a draught of tea from her cup, held by knot handle, and, having wiped her fingertips smartly on the blanket, began to search the text with a hairpin till she reached the word. Met him what? he asked. Here. What does that mean? He leaned downwards and read near her polished thumbnail. Metempsychosis. Yes. Who's he when he's at home? Metempsychosis. It's Greek, from the Greek. That means the transmigration of souls. Oh, rocks. Tell us in plain words. <laughs> he smiled, glancing askance at her mocking eye. Bloom tries really to, to do his best. He's always fumbling. He, he doesn't always get, get it right, but he keeps trying. And he is attentive. He listens to others and he likes to communicate. You cannot say that Stephen likes to communicate. Hmm? He's also attentive to his daughter, who interestingly enough, writes him a whole letter, but only a postcard to the mother. Dearest Papley, thanks ever so much for the lovely birthday present. It suits me splendid. Everyone says I'm quite the belle in my new tam. I got Mummy's lovely box of creams and I'm writing. They are lovely. I am getting on swimming in the photo business now. Mr. Cochrane took one of Interesting enough, the whole family is somewhat unusual. Molly is a singer, not everybody can be a singer. Bloom, we learn, and it's confirmed later, does something in advertising, which was a very, very new kind of profession. And Millie is apprenticed to a photographer, and that, for a girl, would have been quite a modern kind of profession. So even there, they're not quite typical, huh? And, as a reference, if the midwife knew at once that Rudy wouldn't live, there's again a good guess will be borne out later on that this is a son who died very soon and was born uh, 11 years ago. She knew from the first poor little Rudy wouldn't live. Well, God is good, sir. 
She knew at once. He would be eleven now if he had lived. is below ground in a simple kitchen talks down to a cat and Bloom is very observant because the cat doesn't just say meow the standard word but has a very strange utterance <laughs> with many consonants that keep changing uh, which shows for me anyway that Bloom actually listens to the cat whereas Stephen used the dog as a kind of projection screen uh, for his mind and Bloom has but Stephen certainly doesn't have a kind of empathy oh there you are Mr. Bloom said turning from the fire the cat mewed in answer and stalked again stiffly round the leg of the table mewing the openings are quite different one on high in mock praise of God the other down to an animal Scratch my head. Both characters wear black, are in some kind of mourning, as we know Stephen in a kind of exaggeration. Bloom, because today is going to a funeral. In the first chapter we learn, and there's some emphasis on it, that Stephen reluctantly gives up his key tower. Bloom, we learn, at this moment doesn't have his key, if he forgot that. So there are already, I would say, faint patterns that may lead somewhere or, or may not. Uh, we don't quite know. But then I, I uh, wouldn't have connected the cloud that passes over Dorset Street when he's going home with the cloud that passed over the tower. I mean, uh, was there only one cloud in yeah, the sky? I mean, choice indicated by giving it almost the same expression. Yes. Uh, yeah and roughly at the same position within mm-hmm. the chapter. So, I mean, it makes good sense to say it is either the identical cloud or a similar one, and they both react in the same way. Yes. The, the mood, somebody, mm. Stephen thinks of his dead mother, Lover. Bloom thinks of, of the dead sea. The and dead sea and um, mm. the oldest race. A cloud began to cover the sun, holy, slowly, holy. Grey, far. This chapter is relatively easy to follow. There's few things, as if, if you compare it to the previous one, where almost every tenth word you would have to look up. There's hardly anything here, and the one word that's difficult is explained right away, metempsychosis. Perhaps the most difficult part is really what you mentioned about the Freeman's leader and the home rule mm, son. Yes. What is a home rule son mm. for some reader in Korea right now, or, or Warsaw, or something like that, whereas Home Rule, of course, at the time was an important concept, the goal to achieve local mm-hmm. independence mm-hmm. and all that. And Arthur Griffith is a name. Somebody growing up here would remember the name Arthur Griffith. He's, it's not the, he's not in the forefront. It's not the first name that comes to mind yeah. in relation to it. Yeah. Unfairly, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, but you would have <clears> some <throat> idea. I mean, so oh, yes, of course. Yes, would have, it it would has to be known. explained to others. And again here, since we come to the Homeric angle, um, Joyce referred to it as Calypso. Now, Odysseus, after being shipwrecked, swam 
to the Isle of Calypso, where there was the nymph Calypso, kind of half-goddess. And he was there for seven years until, by divine decree, he, he was released and he had an affair. And uh, <clears throat> This, again, is not, I think, an immediately useful kind of thing. Uh, just one thing, Calypso means hiding, and there's a lot of hiding there. The letter is half hidden. Molly reads it in her absence. Just a song at twilight when the lights are low and the flickering shadows softly come and go. We have all kinds of songs in the in the book already. Mm. Who goes with Fergus? That's a music. Others we have actually the Rem classical opera. Mm. We have this drawing room, Lao Tzu Sweet Song. We have music hall. So already there's a lot of music somehow embedded, quite important. That too will escalate, and later I will come to full bloom in a, in a later mm. chapter. Yeah, but this kind of musicality is an important mm. element right mm. from the beginning. The other peculiar thing that I find is that to have a daughter of 15 working in a photographic shop is strange enough, but to send her to Mullingar, to send her away at the age of 15, is very strange indeed. Uh I I don't think that... We don't have any background, of course, in this. But she seems happy enough to be down there and to be enjoying herself. Mm -hmm. Of course, she has got a boyfriend... There's a young student comes here some evenings named Fallon. His cousins are something, are big swells. He sings Boylan's. I was on the pop of writing Blaze's Boylan's, song about those seaside girls. And interestingly enough, we could now link that, if we had this ideal memory, which is unlikely, really, mm. uh, link that <coughs> to what Mulligan heard about somebody Bannon about a photo girl. Mm. Now we can guess, and it will be borne out, that this is the same person. So in a way, Millie had been introduced, but not named, already at the end Mm. of the first chapter. So as we continue reading, and again, if we had better memories than most of us have, you could see all kinds of links. So Mm. Millie, in a way, is prefigured, but I don't think anyone should at this point say what's coming. We can only understand it retrospectively. So again, I mean, uh, Joyce reiterates that we have to be patient, keep things in mind. Sometimes they will resolve themselves, sometimes not. And of course, we also in the chapter find out some of what Bloom wants to do. It's a mirror image of Stephen. Stephen wants to write the great novel, as it were, while Bloom wants to write a short story at a guinea uh, column, is it? Or? Yeah. Uh, the tidbits actually existed. It was a weekly. Hmm? Yes, and yes. And he had uh, all kinds of questions and... Uh, uh, puzzles. Strange, and puzzles things. and things. And Bloom, in a way, thinks it would be nice to make money by mm. writing. <clears throat> and again, uh, there's a lot of money there. Bloom wonders how much money does a pubkeeper make out of uh, mm. Guinness and things like that. He works it out. He's very much concerned about this. And we keep track Yes, and it's quite complicated because he tries to work out if the agent for the the stout or whatever it is they're selling 
has an arrangement with the manager of the pub, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how much would yeah. they each get? It's yeah. not a straightforward thing. They, nothing is simple with yeah. them at all. And also, while Bloom was going on the way to buy his kidney, he thought about Larry O'Rourke and his pub. And something came to his mind, which a lot of Dubliners were always curious about. Where do they get the money? Coming up with red-headed curates from the county Leitrim, rinsing empties and old men in the cellar. Then, lo and behold, they blossom out as Adam Finlaters or Dan Talents. Well, they may not necessarily have come from the county Leitrim, but most people who owned pubs in Dublin in 1904 were from the country. And they did come up as curates, as we called them. We called them grocer's curates. That's a barman, what they, they were known as. Simply because a curate in old terms is someone who assists. But how they came up without a halfpenny to their name and then suddenly were able to buy pubs was one of the great mysteries of Irish life. The other thing too is that when he goes into the butchers he gets this ad for the model farm by Lake Tiberius in the Holy Land. That seems to indicate that the, the butcher is Zionist in some way because it's a Zionist foundation. And there's an empathy between Bloom and the the butcher, but Bloom chooses not to put it forward. This is the first uh, indication that we have that Bloom may be Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, uh, a Jewish pork butcher is a contradiction in itself. So, uh, by the way, this butcher was imported by... Joyce, mm-hmm. uh, whereas Larry O'Rourke was there, mm-hmm. the school is there, and all of that. But this, and he gave him a strange, by the way, it seems Czech name, mm-hmm. Lugash, mm-hmm. Uh, a name that he had found in Trieste. And so he really implants that onto the Dublin scene, quite uncharacteristic. Unca- yes, it's one of these things. Everything else is there yeah. except mm-hmm. the butcher shop. Incidentally, we learn later on, and you already said Bloom lives in Ecclesfield, we later have the address. This has become, in a way, the best known literary actual address. Sherlock Holmes lived in a fake number mm. Baker Street, uh, which didn't exist. But Bloom's home, unfortunately it's gone, did exist. And the door was put up in the old Bailey restaurant, and now it's in the James Joyce Centre. I suppose it's a genuine door. I was standing outside the real door in 1970 and tried to unscrew the number seven, which I couldn't do. <laughs> um, and now it's in the Joyce Centre, in the back room, wall. It's probably the real door from the real building. Bloom lived behind it, but Bloom never lived. Bloom is a matter of fiction. It's a matter of words and letters. Never existed and yet, in a way, we play the game. Those girls, those girls, those lovely seaside girls, all dimples, smiles and curls, each head and simply whirls. They look a sight. Complexions green and white. Their hats fly off, and at your feet falls golden hair from Regent Street. Rouge and puffs slip down the cuffs of pretty little seaside girls. 